everyone. Welcome to a brand new episode of the Genre Equality Podcast on the Genre Equality Channel. My name is Hitzir. I'm Hadi. I'm Isa. Um, we have lots to talk to you about this month, particularly um, with a stacked summer rundown. Mm-hmm. Um, Doctor Strange in the Multiverse of Madness is out in cinemas right now, killing the box office. Um, on the flip side, Disney Plus has released and completed the first season of Moon Knight starring Oscar Isaac and Ethan Hawke. Um, so we'll be covering both the MCU in the big screen and the small screen. Plus me and Hardy will be talking about Undone Season 2. Um, the Northman is out right now alongside Love, Death and Robots Volume 3, currently out on Netflix. Um, Hardy is going to valiantly attempt to review Halo and Star Trek Picard <laughs> for us. Um, much respect, Hadi. Thank you so much You're for welcome. this. This is why this is why we brought you back. Yeah. Um, <laughs> <laughs> um, alongside many, many more topics, uh. Um, but first, you know, we kick off with some rather sad news. Um, since our last recording, just over the last thirty days, um, two icons of uh the comic book industry have sadly passed away. Yeah. Um, so I'd like to say a, a a few short words about George Perez. Um, the famed comic book artist of Wonder Woman mm-hmm. and Crisis on Infinite Earths, alongside Neil Adams, who has also passed away, mm-hmm. um, who is a legend in both DC and Marvel comics from the 60s and 70s, yep. uh, particularly with Batman, Superman, Avengers, X-Men, Green Lantern, Green Arrow. Um, both these guys are real titans of the industry, and uh, within the past month, both have passed away. Um, mm-hmm. Isa, um, you know, I, I think not, not just Isa, like Isa and Hadi, you know, we all have read comics for a long time. Mm-hmm. Um, do you have any uh, memories or thoughts that you'd like to share about the passing of either Neil Adams or George Perez? Oh, uh, okay. You go ahead first, Isa. Uh, I think Wonder Woman was a, a very kind of pivotal character for me. Uh, mm. Especially like if we're talking, well, not golden age necessarily, but if we're talking like going into modern comics, like early nineties mm. and going to that, like Wonder yep. Woman was an important comic book for me to understand. Just like uh, it was a huge change, right? In in terms of mm. like uh, how women were represented in comics and what is possible with the the storytelling of the medium surrounding, right? Uh, women mm-hmm. figures, women of power, and 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 um all of that jazz so you know very important um figure both in that and just like in my consumption of like geek culture especially and i think like even that has led up you know to today uh with everything that's been going on and the kind of revolution we have i think it started with the very kind of simple idea uh Mm -hmm. that perez's original character um kind of like um kickstarted yeah uh what about you hadi uh, for George Perez, I think the one thing that I really remember him for was mm. the JLA Avengers uh, crossover. La. Yep. Yeah, back in the early 2000s. Because that was the nascent time when I was like really reading comics. And like, mm-hmm. I, you know, I was in secondary school and it was like, you know, going to uh, Comic Smart at Serene Center, you know. And I still remember that. And, and that was one of the first... Uh, like. Like, I mean, it was long awaited, right? And it was like this really cool concept of the two DC Marvel characters, you know, actually being in one mm. comic, right? So that 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 really was my uh I think my fondest memory uh, of reading that comic. Uh. It's not a very good comic though, right? I mean <laughs> it's it's like every, it, it, you know. But it's not but but what George Perez is as you're talking about known for, right, yeah. is drawing these 
yes. gigantic ensemble yes. super themes. I think yeah. his biggest gift um, that most people know of is his illustrations of complex crowds, you yes. know, with detri- detailed drawings and realistic ren- renderings of like 500 characters in each frame. You know? Thank you. Yes. Um, yeah, he was that guy, and and that's why he was um, often handpicked for titles like Avengers and titles like JLA, and of course, mm-hmm. Crisis on Infinite Earths was his coup de gras, you know. Yeah. Uh, mean, meanwhile, no Adams sort of made Batman scary again. Oh, yeah. mm-hmm. uh, um, Neil Adams was to me the definitive Batman artist, mm-hmm. um, and his work on Batman is what stands out to me the most. Uh, but of course, he's done so much work with so many other titles as well. Yeah. As of yeah. both of these guys, like, um, huge, um, huge body of work that will be remembered to this day. I own a lot of their comics, as do um, both of, of us, you. Yeah. So yeah, um, R.I.P. to George Perez and Neil Adams. Mm-hmm. Um, let's kick it off uh, from comic books to comic book movies. Ooh. We're here to talk about Doctor Strange 2, uh, colon, in the Multiverse of Madness, mm-hmm. um, in Marvel Studios' latest film, um, the MCU unlocks the multiverse and pushes its boundaries um, further than ever after the events of Loki, What If, and Spider-Man No Way Home. Um, we're probably going to keep it spoiler-free at first. So here's the kind of the barest bones synopsis. Um, we journey into the unknown with Doctor Strange, who, with the help of mystical allies, both old and new, um, transverses mind-bending and dangerous alternate realities of the multiverse to mm-hmm. confront a mysterious new adversary um, who is in the form of an old hero. Um, what did you guys think of Doctor Strange 2? Um, let's kick it off with Hardy here. I think Hardy has a, has a more optimistic, positive view, whereas I think uh, Isa has a more underwhelming view. So let's kick it off with the positive. Hardy, what do you think about Doctor Strange 2? Um, okay, on the positive side of it, yeah. uh, I found it... Uh, first of all, okay, um, what's the director's name? Sam Raimi. Sam Raimi, thank you. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I think Sam Raimi put his identity on this movie very well. Mm. Uh, in terms of the the the, the horror elements that, that pop up here and there. Yep. I like that. Um I like the continuation of the mystical side of uh the the, the mystical and the multiversal side of of the mm. MCU, right? Being explored even mm. more on in this movie. Mm. Um I love all the Easter eggs that were were, were placed in this movie because there's so many Easter eggs in this movie. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, so if you are a, a person that is you know a Marvel fan, not only an MCU fan but you know Marvel in general, you know you, you caught a lot of things like, yeah. especially on the second viewing mm. Um, and yeah, so that was something that I enjoyed a lot. I enjoyed. I also. I, I loved how America was uh, introduced to us. Um, Amer- America Chavez is a new uh, comic book hero introduced in this film. Um, her powers is to transfer the multiverse. That's her gift. Exactly. Yep. And she's the only person that can do it. And she therefore, she does, she can't find any other versions of her in any of the multiverse. Mm-hmm. Yeah, she's very unique. Yeah. Um, she doesn't require technology or spells to transfer the multiverse. That's just what she does. Exactly. Yeah. Um, yep. To keep it spoiler free, some of the cameos a bit too much, <laughs> or like, uh, and and some of the some of the parts didn't really make. I mean, just it, okay. It felt a little bit, um, packed with too much information sometimes. Oh. Yeah, and people can get lost. Mm. So yeah, that's another thing that uh, that I find uh, yeah lah, that, that was a bit uh, worrisome lah. But overall, okay. I do enjoy. I I did enjoy the movie. 
mm. for what it was lah. You know, I wouldn't say it's perfect by uh, any uh, by a long shot lah. Mm. Mm-hmm. Um, but I still enjoyed myself throughout lah. Yeah, sure. And also uh, the but, tie but in the sorry, oh. and also the tie-ins to all the other um, MCU. Um, you know, uh, what do you call it? Uh, movies and franchises, TV series, yeah. properties. That's nice. Yep. La. That's yep. that's a little good lah. Good lah. Good stuff there. Yeah. Uh, what about you, Isa? Uh, I I will go as far as to say that I like Hardy. I did enjoy Multiverse mm. for sure. Uh, I do think that this is one of the cases that, in general, the fandoms have spoiled themselves mm. by overreaching with their imagination. Uh, so mm. anyone who has subscribed to the entire idea that we were going to get an entire slew, uh, a spectacular kind of like panorama of all possible versions and all possible realities in this one single movie mm-hmm. are, are going to be sorely disappointed. Uh, but yep. what... Uh, this movie does deliver is it delivers enough right it delivers enough uh, of a look into the multiverse to feel coherent enough as a story uh, mm. I do agree that some of the cameos seemed a bit much uh, and I'm very very glad for new the newcomer who plays uh, America Chavez uh, I really mm. enjoyed her kind of role Benedict Cumberbatch continues to be Benedict Cumberbatch uh, yeah. a bit of phoning it home in my opinion mm. and um Elizabeth Olsen had some amazing moments, uh, but I overall I felt like there was some bits that felt a little uneven. Uh, but still, like a fun ride, all in all. I, I think like visually, yep. uh, conceptually, some of the ideas that they've borrowed from this this multiverse idea that is such a huge topic within the comic books uh, and difficult in general to kind of uh, tackle has mm. been it's been done fairly well right uh, if if not in its completion this is our first peak anyway right mm, yep. uh, on on the big screen uh, mm. so in that respect i think it's pretty well done but far from being the best mcu movie or the most yeah. mind mind blowing one yeah yeah um it's the it's the second peak like technically after no way home mm-hmm. um let's move into spoiler territory of course you know if we just like hardy mentioned um a shit ton of cameos as the multiverse of madness should have yeah but um it has both too much and too little um depending on your point of view um some mm-hmm. people feel like it's not enough some people feel <laughs> that it's too much like hardy um but let's address what is there of course you know the big one um, beyond uh, Patrick Stewart um, returning as Professor Xavier for um, this alternate universe that Doctor Strange comes to, we also have John Krasinski <laughs> yeah. um, um, as Mr. Fantastic. We have um, Anson Elgort. Uh, sorry, not Anson Elgort. Um, <laughs> different person. Anson Mount. Yes, yes. Anson Mount. <laughs> uh, uh, the Inhumans King. Yeah, yes. Uh, Black Bolt um, is there as well. Uh, Hayley Atwell is back as Captain Carter for uh, a different universe. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, Monica Rambeau is playing that universe's version of Captain Marvel. Mm-hmm. Um, and Chitawa Ujayo for playing um, another version of Mor- uh, Mordo as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, Mo- the big topic uh, coming out, spoiler-wise, is the, the multiversal Illuminati. At least that universe is, is this uni- Illuminati, right? Yeah. Um, did, did you guys enjoy that little Easter egg? Um, let's begin with you, Heidi. Uh, yeah, I, I definitely did because, you know, it was, I mean, my, my theater, I think, actually, like, um, cheered and clapped loud and that happened. <laughs> yes, right? yeah. Um, but, I mean, I think the small, like, okay, because in humans, remember the TV series, how bad it was? Yep. So oh, when Anson Mount was Black Bolt, he was like, oh, okay, no, why cheered for that? La? <laughs> <laughs> Nobody realized, I think, that it was Anson Mount reprising his role as Black Bolt. Yeah. 
Yeah. Right. Uh, John Krasinski. I'm guessing he's going to have a Fantastic Four movie coming out, right? Oh yeah. Uh yes yeah. Yeah, so that's quite cool to see him in this version of uh, Mister Fantastic. Uh, mm-hmm. I think. Um, I mean, Captain uh, Captain Britain, I guess. Carter. Uh, Captain Carter. Sorry. <laughs> Yeah. Uh, she, I mean, we already saw it, saw it in What If, so this was quite cool mm. to see it live action, right? Mm. Uh, she has a jetpack in this one. Yeah, cool, <laughs> cool stuff. Yeah, yeah. And then, yeah, obviously Xavier is the, the number one thing, like, you know, Picard, Xavier, whatever. Well, I'm going to cover a lot of uh, Patrick Stewart mm. today. Yes, you are. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. Anyway, yeah, Patrick Stewart reprising his role as uh, Charles Xavier was dope. Um, mm. Though his death was... <laughs> Wait, are we spoilers, really? Yes, we're inspired. Yeah, yeah, right. yeah, yeah. His death was hilarious. Um, but also, the horror element of Sam Raimi there, you know, with him um, getting killed in his, his mind and therefore getting killed in real life. Like, I love that. Mm-hmm, yeah. mm-hmm. Uh, and also what, to show the power like, level oh. of uh, Scarlet Witch, obviously. Yeah. Yes, yes. She's mm-hmm. certainly the most uh, powerful character in the MCU. As she should moment. be. Mm-hmm. Yeah, uh, by not and and she is one of the most powerful, uh, legendarily like in comic book yeah. canon as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, what about you, Aisa? Oh, um, the Illuminati version that we got. I uh, love the fact that Krasinski is there. Like, can't really, I can't wait to see him kind of like fulfill that role as Mister Fantastic. Yep. I think that it's been a uh, with all the Fantastic Four movies that has come out, no one has felt quite as right as Krasinski so far. Mm. Uh, and mm. that is, and we've only seen him in like a couple of minutes of screen time total, right? Uh, mm. I'm very curious as to who they're going to fill out the rest of the cast for. I think it's mm. been a while since Fantastic Four has lapsed back into the MCU's uh, purview. Mm. Uh, yep. And I am very curious as to how they're going to do it. Obviously, uh, Multiverse of Madness has opened that door, or at least the mm. possibility of that happening uh, fairly soon. Mm. Uh, of course, Patrick Stewart as Professor X is dope uh still my favorite version of professor x on the big screen so far <laughs> uh, yeah no no with, with no. the corny uh, yellow wheelchair <laughs> yeah i think that that to me felt a lot more like the xavier that i remember from the original 90s cartoon correct right? Same. and they even did the theme song <laughs> yeah and and like i i feel like uh stewart had enough gravitas to kind of pull off the yeah. fact that he is not just carrying on screen like this whole like hit canon of uh, the X-Men movies that we got back then, right? The early ones. Yeah. Uh, but yeah. also kind of like encapsulating whatever more grimy, more dirty, more like dark version of um, McAvoy's kind of performances as well. Yeah. Uh, which, which I kind of like, right? But like this felt a little bit more like what we got in Logan, which I'm cool with. Um, okay. As far as this go, yeah, Monica Rambeau as that. Uh, it's a cool kind of side note, I guess. Uh, something that I think isn't quite addressed in Strange, uh, or rather, Strange doesn't know, right? The possibility uh-huh. or what? Uh, how Monica is involved with the the uh, Captain Marvel uh, uh-huh. kind of shenanigans that are going on there. Yeah. Well, it, uh, nice kind of farewell to uh, Ansel. <laughs> Mm-hmm. Um, Ensign, uh, sorry, yeah, uh, <laughs> yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. A, a nice kind of farewell to that. Uh, I think our cinema had no idea who he was, I know. Uh, mm. and just so few people watched Inhumans as uh, as they should have. I did because we had to review it or something. I remember. Yeah, you. It was mm. just. It was just. I don't know. I don't remember getting past three episodes for the Inhumans thing. So bad. Um, but like Black Ball is such an a cool character. And yes. like nothing really has ever done it justice. I do hope in the future we get to see um, 
you know, at least they've addressed mm. it, right? The it, possibility of the Inhumans. Yeah, it's just very hard to do uh, Black Bolt because of the fact that he doesn't speak. So, Agreed. I mean, it, it takes a, a very good like uh, writer. Yes. And, you know, yeah, the whole thing like, to do it correctly, like, which they didn't do. Like. Yeah, yeah. And yeah, yeah. yeah. That and the fact like we that we don't have Medusa around, right? Like it's exactly. Not, yeah. Uh, there's no one there to kind of like translate for them, and that was something that exactly. they felt horribly in the human humans TV show as well. Yes, yes. Um, I mean, very notably, I guess, like what we imagine from the Illuminati, um, uh, of of like six one six canon, right? Like in the in in the comic books itself, obviously missing uh, Black Panther, uh, mm-hmm. rest in peace. Yeah. Uh, you know, sure. and, and things like that. But I think we definitely got an interesting kind of version of it. Sure. Uh, how that kind of ties into um all the possibilities. Uh, and probably I'm I'm guessing seeding the idea of an Illuminati within Stranger's Head uh for you know the MCU at large. Uh, that's mm-hmm. gonna be interesting who forms that, right? I don't think mm-hmm. we're getting that to the next phase, uh, but mm-hmm. still kind of a cool all around. Uh, shout out to a very major part of the comic book series that fans have kind of been waiting for for a while. Yeah, I agree. Yeah, um, I I personally like loved every single one, including Anson Mount, uh, because you know, and I, I we all know Anson Mount is a great actor Same. who's just you know undone by terrible directing, and terrible writing in the Inhumans TV yeah. show. Um, but like non MCU side note at all, I also sideways you know on a on a segue geeked out because it was. You know, Captain Pike and Captain Picard. Yes, mm. yes. Mm. Um, yeah, but that's that's my Star Trek fandom showing as well. Um, the other kind of thing, since we're in spoiler territory, it's okay to reveal right now yep. that uh, Wanda, um, Wanda Maximoff, is the villain in this film, yeah. um, the Scarlet Witch. Um, how do you? How did you think uh, Sam Raimi handled Wanda as the villain? Did it make sense? Did it work for you as an antagonist? Majority of the time, I think it worked. Yeah. Um, However, I feel that if you if you think a bit harder about her issue, right? Mm. Just like slightly harder, you right, realize there's a lot more ways to solve her problems. <laughs> sure. Than, you know, doing this whole like uh, destruction thing that she was going for. Mm. Um, but however, I know, I, I also I understand that the whole dark hole corruption thing. La. So yep. um, that was the main reason why she did all these shenanigans. La. Was actually mm. the dark hole was corrupting her. La. Yeah. Uh, yes. Yes. As as we've seen a dark hole do in Agents of Shield and exactly. Runaways, you know, it's yeah. it's quite a famous book in the MCU canon. Yeah, and mm-hmm. nobody can get away from its corruption once you start using it, uh, mm. And that was the problem, and I'm and so I'm fine with that. Um, yep. I think Sam Raimi did a good job in the horror part. You know, when the reflections thing that they were going for, mm. oh, that was brilliantly done. Mm. Mm. He made he made Wonder look genuinely scary. Yeah. 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 Uh, only that you now we know that uh. Kamatach, that's the, the, the place, right? The Doctor yes. Strangers. Yep. Yeah. Kamatach is the worst, like, defended uh, force <laughs> in the world. Uh. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> Got wiped out. I mean, yeah, again, to show the power level between Wanda and the Sorceress, uh, that is it. Uh. Yeah. Um, I think there's a bit of, I mean, this is a very, very, like, weird side note. Uh, that bull character, right? Yep. That's mm-hmm. a Chinese god, right? I don't know. I just thought it was a Minotaur. If I remember correctly, it's a Chinese god or medicine or something like that. Oh, really? Okay. I am oh. not familiar. I was kind of curious about that as as well. Yeah. So, um, yeah. Anyway, never mind. <laughs> yeah. It's basically yeah, like this bull character, and he has he basically has a, a transparent stomach, 
So oh. when he eats uh, anything, right, uh, mm. he can see the, the, the effects of it through oh. his stomach and all that. Some shit. I don't know why for some reason something that came out <laughs> in my mind when I was watching it. I'm definitely going to go and Google this. After yeah. done. That's, that's don't they just eat grass? Uh, and so that's how the guy died. He ate a very thin, uh, uh, a very like a thin piece of grass, and as the grass entered, cut open his stomach into ribbons. Oh shit! Oh, oh wow. wow! Damn. Okay. Freaking random. I'm so sorry. Okay, that's no, that, no, that's no. It. That's fine. <laughs> yeah, like very, very your... nice. Yeah, yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah. You, um, um, as Hardy has already pointed out, of course, you know the power leveling of Wanda is probably the best thing that the movie does here. Um, yes. Her decimation of Kamara Touch, her destruction of uh, Black Bolt. Um, Sam Raimi in particular crafted a really gruesome way to kill uh, Black Bolt, uh, Mr. Fantastic, yeah. um, and the rest of the heroes. You know, it just goes to show, you know, Wanda is leagues and leagues above these regular heroes. Like, uh, what about you, um, Isa? Do you have similar feelings about Wanda as the villain for this film? Uh, I, I think they've done enough just setting it up in WandaVision, right? Like, the the uh, the motivation for what she does in Multiverse of Madness is understandable for those of you who are going straight from WandaVision into that as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, I did wish there was a bit of a less reliance on her power coming from the Dark Hole. Like we, as as longtime fans, we know that a lot of Wanda's power is an innate connection with, uh, you know, um, uh, kind of the weave of magic, uh, and her kind of legendary place within the prophecies of of being the Scarlet Witch. Um, mm. So, while it is understandable to to level her through that and her attraction to the Dark Hole as an easy way to get the power that she needs in order to achieve her goals, I also felt like it did a bit of injustice to the fact that she's already by herself incredibly powerful. Um, you know, which is kind of... Uh, it's, a, it's a very different uh, and acceptable but very different look at the way that Wanda is here in the MCU as opposed to like our introduction or our shock into how powerful she is in you know the famous like no more mutants moment right um yeah and and this is a lot more clear cut I think that it's going to be kind of fascinating how they unspool that because we are in kind of uncharted territory at the moment as far Mm. as Wanda and how she places within uh the the greater MCU moving forward goes uh, but mm. yeah, I, I do feel like it was apt the way at the end of the day, it really took Wanda to stop Wanda. Yes. Uh, for yeah, sure. Um, it took Wanda to stop Wanda, yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. It could have felt... Uh, there were moments where I felt that it could have been a bit more dire. Like the situation could have felt more dire before we reached that point, right? Uh, mm-hmm. You know, um, America's kind of like uh, great, kind of brilliant uh, inspiration... Uh, to kind of uh, uh, bring the two wonders together in order to facilitate the the uh, closing of the final, uh, the clim- the climatic closing, uh, what's mm. cool for sure. Uh, but at the same time, it I don't know if it's the way that Cumberbatch decided to play it. There were moments when it didn't feel like they were in as much trouble as they mm. should have been. Uh, in sp- yeah. specifically, Doctor Strange and Wong, right? Like it felt like sure, you know, uh, they are. That, I mean, there's plenty going on, but I don't know if they felt like they were in danger necessarily. Mm. Um, you know, and uh, it's it's a multiversal problem as well. Like every time you introduce the fact that there's so many of you across so many kind of like different universes, like you can be replaced, right? 
and what was it, it what was so specific and in uh and and special about our 616 characters as we have established now thanks to uh Christine Palmer from the other world um mm-hmm. uh uh that that is kind of important because we've seen several doctor strangers die in the course of this uh movie mm. Yes, yes, exactly. Um, yeah, a lot of people had had some problems uh, with um, Wanda turning villainous um, character motivation wise. Um, mm. I could, I can only assume that those who had problems with it did not watch uh, Wonder Vision, or perhaps are unaware of her history in the MCU even because you know she did start out as a villain. Yeah, she does have a propensity to to take um, shortcuts through magic mm-hmm. or through villainous means. Um, it is a thing in her that has been brought out through trauma. Um, some people felt that maybe she has already moved on from her grief after WandaVision. Yeah. Um, I would like to point out that she moved on from her grief from Vision, not her children. Yeah. Um, so this is this is her motivation for the film. Yeah. Um, o- overall, um, you know, um, complete overall thoughts about Doctor Strange 2. Let's begin with you, Hardy. Um, give me your thoughts and then your rating at the end. Okay, uh, let's begin with Isa first, I guess. Yeah, uh, I think it. this has been a valiant effort. Uh, overall, yep. right? Like, it's a difficult one to kind of tackle. Uh, it okay. was ambitious and they swung fairly hard and I think on most counts, uh, it yep. definitely... Uh, well, it hit on most counts, I think. At the end of the day, I enjoyed it. Uh, it could have been so much more, but again, that's me as a fan wishing for so much more as opposed to what's actually feasible within the kind of runtime that we got. Right. Uh, okay. So I'm going to give it a solid kind of like six and a half out of ten. Uh, okay. I do feel like it. I bumped up the score because there were some very interesting battle scenes uh, yeah. in particular. And like those were very well choreographed, extremely well rendered. Uh, I think the one that comes to mind, especially is the kind of musical battle between these two strangers um, yeah. that, that kind of stood out for me. Uh, which mm. unfortunately is kind of under dispute right now. Someone's saying that they stole it from somewhere else. Uh, <laughs> yeah, but um, yeah. Uh, so like Solid 6.5 out of me, it's, uh, it kind of sits in the middle of the pack or just above the middle of the pack as far as MCU releases have gone mm. so far. All right. Um, Hadi, are you back? Uh, what are your thoughts? Hi, sorry. Um, there's a weird connection there. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Sorry. Uh, I couldn't hear you just now. What do you say again? Oh, I. Um. Yeah. Um. Overall thoughts and then your rating for Doctor. Okay. Strange. So overall thoughts again. Enjoyed the movie. Loved the direction it was going. Um. Yep. What it introduces for the MCU in the future. Mm. Um, yep. I'm just afraid of of. I mean, okay. I I think it ex- uh, it, it it met my expectations. It didn't exceed it definitely. Mm-hmm. Um. Yeah. That. And I ho- I hope they they do learn from the certain mistakes that they kind of made in this movie, you know, where it's uh, bloated at times and all that. Mm. Uh, so yeah, I'm I'm quite sure the MCU adjusts and it'll be fine. Uh, for the rating itself, I think I'll give it a seven out of ten. Okay. Yeah. Yep. Um. Yeah. Um. I think Doctor Strange who um suffers from a lot of um terrible CGI. Um. <laughs> I didn't I didn't like that it looked like a CGI cartoon. Um. A lot of the fight scenes. I think a lot of the MCU in general suffers from that. Yeah. Um. On the plus side, Sam Raimi's directing offers a distinct signature mm, that agreed. most MCU movies do not have. Yeah. Um. It takes a real auteur with vision, i.e. um James Gunn, Taika Waititi, Ryan Coogler, etc. Only those people have been able to put a distinct stamp on the MCU film. And Sam Raimi does that. This feels like a Sam Raimi film. Yeah. Not just 
another episode in the MCU. So I do like that. Um, I like Elizabeth Olsen as Wanda. Um, I think Doctor Strange 2 functions better as WandaVision 2 than as Doctor Strange 2. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> so yeah, those are the pluses and minuses. Um, and this is a 7 out of 10 for me. Uh, moving on to the small screen, let's talk about Moon Knight. Oh, you know? I, um, this was something I was looking forward to. <laughs> sure. Um, from the big screen to the small screen, we are moving on to Disney Plus' Moon Knight. And the latest of the MCU TV shows on Disney Plus, in Moon Knight, we follow Stephen Grant, played by Oscar Isaac, who is hearing voices and having vivid dreams that he soon discovers is related to sharing a body with a mercenary named Mark Spector. More than just discovering that he has multiple personalities, or DID, Stephen also discovers that his fractured mind is also somehow connected to ancient Egyptian mythology, specifically the vengeful god and defender of justice, Khonshu. Um, what did you guys think of season one of Moon Knight? Let's begin with you, Hardy. Okay, so I'm a huge fan of Moon Knight. Yes, okay. right? We all know that from, from the comics, lah. Yeah. Um, the, mm. <laughs> uh, first of all, I was super excited when they casted Oscar Isaac, right? So yep. I was already hyped as fuck. So I was yep. I was looking forward to this, and I I think that it definitely met all my expectations for for this version of Moon Knight. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, I love how they uh they address the the you know his um mental issues, right? His uh, uh multiple personality disorder, right? Mm-hmm. Yes, brilliantly done. I feel with all the cuts and all the 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 the, the blackouts and all that, right? Mm. I think it was done very well. Um, Oscar Isaac he is so good that it literally feels like. I mean, maybe he's not as good as Often Black. Mm-hmm. The the, the Maslany, yes. yeah, who is going to be yeah. She Hulk, right? Yes, that's right. Yes, yeah. So I think her, where you know how she does her uh, multiple personality kind of thing, but then again, mm-hmm. hers is like two actors at once, like. Or something mm-hmm. like that, right? Okay, so anyway, what, what I'm trying to get at is that Oscar Isaac does a really good job at the whole Stephen Grant and um, Max. Mark Spector. Mark, Mark Spector, right? Yeah. What a fan. <laughs> <laughs> it's okay. It my, brain, my brain just farted there. Max Spector. Who the hell is Max Spector? So I, yeah, so yeah. yeah, the whole Mark Spector and uh, Stephen Grant thing brilliantly done, I feel. Uh, I know that Mr. I mean, some comic book fans are like, oh no, that's Mr. Knight. That shouldn't be Stephen Grant, blah, blah, blah. I was like, relax, guys. <laughs> it's still awesome to see, lah, right? Yeah. The whole um, uh, Stephen Grant's uh, version of the suit and how, how he got, uh, why the suit is like that, it was because he really thought of a suit. <laughs> I love that. And, um, and uh, him using the the, uh, the 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 sticks, the Kali sticks, right? To fight. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Beautifully. Uh, I just wish there was a bit more of that. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, whatever it is, uh, I love the exploration of uh, Egyptian mytholo- mythology in in Moon Knight, which uh, is quite a significant part of uh, the MC- uh, of the the Marvel universe, lah. Yeah, mm. and and it being represented uh, so well done in 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 this show in this series, uh, okay. I really appreciate it, lah. Um, nice. I just wish that uh, it was explored a bit more, lah. You know, but then I I yeah. get I get it, lah. You know, it's it's a very compact season with, and they have so mm. much things to explore and all that. Uh, however, we have to criticize. I mean, I think this is uh this was news, and I mean it was really news weeks ago when, uh, people were criticizing um the cha- the Mandarin that um <laughs> uh, <laughs> can't even name? call it that. <laughs> that was like just gibberish, right? Yeah. <laughs> yep. Yeah. Uh, the 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 villain was uh spouting out, 
Um, Ethan Hawke, yeah. Ethan Hawke, yes. Um, training day. So anyway, um, yeah, Moon Knight. Also Northman. And Northman, yeah, the king, uh, his yeah. father. Um, yeah. yeah, brilliantly uh, executed, I feel, for a, uh, for a, a, a debut season uh, mm. for this character. Um, yeah, there, there, I, I feel that uh, all the negatives are more of nitpicks for me. Uh, okay. I didn't really have an issue with this series. Uh, though I, I've seen the reviews and some people do have quite huge issues. To me, those, I didn't feel like it. Like, I felt that, um, I felt that uh, it, it, it represented who and what the essence of Moon Knight is quite well. Mm. So, so I'm, I'm looking forward to see what they do with this character. Uh, I do yep. like uh, his supporting, uh, the supporting characters around him as well. Yep. Especially yes. uh, Layla. Mm. Uh, yeah, uh, yeah, played by Rami's sister yes. in Rami. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Brilliantly done. Uh, yeah. yeah, and her her version of uh, the Scarlet Scarab. Oops, oh. sorry, spoiler alert. Mm. Yeah, but yeah, whatever lah. Um, yeah, like that too lah. Yeah. So <laughs> yes, overall, uh, what about, I had fun. Well, what about you, Isa? Oh, um, overall, I did enjoy Moon Knight. I think it definitely picked up. Uh, I do remember his. You and I were talking kind of like in the the beginning parts when, uh, it it struggled in the first two episodes because we follow Stephen Grant who is mm-hmm. you know I mean just in general even in the comic books itself kind of like the flattest of the personalities that uh, that we have the meekest the, the meekest of mm. all and, and therefore you know the most kind of bland right mm. I think that in and of itself as I was talking to a couple of friends who had no kind of inkling about who Moon Knight was mm. um uh, it, it kind of did turn them off because they were struggling with the idea that how is this guy a superhero, mm-hmm. right? You're telling me that this is one of your favorite superheroes. How does that kind of play out? Like, mm-hmm. where's the badassery? Where's the costumes? Where's all of that? Where we're really just seeing Stephen Grant dealing with the consequences of being part of this strange trinity between him, uh, Mark Spector, and and Conchu, right? Uh, and uh, with the in, with the as it went on and there were more kind of like story elements included there the reveal of Mark Spector uh, the reveal of the pact with Konshu uh, like that definitely got better the more characters we got the more interesting it became uh, and I I found that really cool I, I think like uh, Bendis's kind of like they've they borrowed largely from King and Bendis's kind of like arcs here um mm. For the TV show, which I really enjoyed, uh, in particular, the examining of, you know, um, Moon Knight's relationship with, uh, uh, you know, Egyptian mythology, which wasn't something that existed until, I guess, fairly recently in in Moon Knight mythology uh, Mm. in in general. So I do like that they went with that. I think that opened a lot of avenues. Uh, There was one kind of thread that I thought they would go for because they went that direction that didn't get touched. Uh, but mm. we'll go into kind of spoiler territory for that. Um, okay. Yeah, before we go into that. Uh, overall, I thought it was good. I think the representation of DID was fairly treated and nuanced and, um, well, they did it respectfully, right? Uh, I, I think the, the relationship between the two personalities and how that plays out and how Layla as a, a friend and associate of these two two different men yeah. within the same body was also very well written and kind of well played out. Like, it felt uh, substantial. Like, it didn't feel like, you know, one actor playing two roles, they did feel a bit more rounded out than than just simply, you know, um, a one actor, you know, trying their best to tackle two roles at one time. Um, yeah. Fight choreography, I really enjoyed. 
Um, the action sequences were great in some portions. Uh, surprisingly, mm. I think a lot of the CGI that we got here felt better than what we got in Multiverse of Madness uh, here. And some of the really, really epic feeling battles were just that. Uh, shout out to whoever did the music because the music is dope, right? Uh, especially the music for the opening sequence uh, is just like, wow, it's, it's kind of fire. Um, mm. And just kind of localized for that. Uh, I feel overall... Um, Moon Knight did pretty well. I wanted more, which I think is a good sign. But I'm also concerned that Oscar Isaac isn't interested in coming back to do a second season. Uh, yeah. Uh, yeah, yeah. Um, I feel free to go into spoiler ter- spoiler spoiler territory. Um, you wanted to bring up um a minor spoiler just now. Um, Isa, go ahead. Yeah. So, uh, w- because we were talking about like this entire idea of. Uh, Moon Knight receiving their power from Khonshu, which is, I believe, King's Run, in which he delves into that, uh, if I remember correctly. Um, how he gets that power, right, uh, is ultimately revealed within the comic book series to have come from Kang. Uh, like, Kang travels back in time to ancient Egypt and somehow that power lands up with, with Moon Knight, right? Or at least the yeah. earliest version of Moon Knight that's as possible. And I was thinking that maybe they'll find a way to kind of squeeze that in. Oh, wow. Um, just so you know, to just kind of tie in everything. Moon Knight does feel fairly separate from mm-hmm. the rest of the MCU at this point in time, and I believe it's intentionally so. Um, so I understand if that's not something that they necessarily wanted to go do. Um, overall, I mean, uh, I I think it's a good series, but it doesn't rank in the top like kind of TV stuff that we're getting from the MCU at the moment. Yeah, for me, yep. um. It could have been more. Uh, it could have been, but that's just me speaking as a huge like fan of the franchise as a whole, mm, mm. right? Uh, um, I mean, there's one issue like with Mister mm-hmm. Knight. I think was that Mister Knight is more of like a detective sort of guy. Mm. Yeah, so that wasn't yeah. really shown here, lah. Mm, yeah. Okay. Um, Hadi, um, your overall thoughts and rating for Moon Knight. Uh, so like I said, I loved it, so I'm like giving it like eight and a half, lah. Nice. Okay. Uh, What about you, Aisa? Okay. Uh, I'm gonna give it a six and a half out of ten. Bastard. Uh, as well. I mean, you know, it's it's kind of congruent with with how I've been ranking most of the MCU stuff. Uh, Mm. this year at least. Uh, it's worth a watch for sure. If you love Moonlight, like this, is just adds to kind of like how special that character is. What started out as kind of like Batman satire really kind of Mm. came into its own uniqueness within the MCU. Yeah. Uh, you know, and I, I wish there would be more because like, I think there's a lot of promise there, uh, but we'll see if that even happens. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I thought that Moon Knight had one great episode. Um, only one. Um, it was episode five. It was Asylum. Um, it was the episode where Mark and... Oh, I like that one. Uh, yeah. Um, where Mark and... Shit, what's his name? Steven. Steven. Um, you know, we're trapped in the, in the mental asylum together and addressing each other's uh, mental and psychological trauma, how they came about to have, you know, DID and all that. I thought that was very beautiful, uh, beautifully written, beautifully shot. Mm-hmm. Um, just a beautiful character study of what it, of, of the root causes of DID. Agreed. Um, amazing episode. And then it follows up with, I think, a really underwhelming finale. Moon Knight <laughs> is at its worst when it becomes a superhero show. Uh, yeah, uh, yeah. Um, I do not, I felt that <laughs> They should have done less action and less superheroics <sighs> and focus more on the character of Moon Knight <laughs> as as asylum vet. Yeah, um, 
So I think overall I'm giving this um even lower than Hardy. Uh, even lower than Isa actually. I'm giving this a six out of ten. <laughs> I actually enjoyed that last episode with all the big you know, the big hoo ha with the like you know fighting at the pyramids and shit. It was a grand spectacle to have like the fight in the foreground and then the giant fight yeah, in the background, right? Yeah, like exactly. it has that whole kaiju kind of mecha yeah, yes. vibes, which yes. I thought was cool, but I understand where but I know where he's coming from. Yeah, I, I know where he's yeah, coming yeah, from, yeah. right? They they couldn't find a balance, mm, you know, okay. when yeah. it came to that. And yeah. Uh, Do you think like oh, the Thor movie that's coming out will tie in a bit more of the like the god stuff? Ooh. Um, I was expecting a post-credit scene where we were introduced to God, God Butcher, killing maybe one or two Egyptian gods. Um, but we didn't get that. Um, <laughs> yeah, in, in the end, I thought it was fine. I, I actually think one of Moon Knight's greatest strengths is that it is standalone. Yeah. Um, part of the problem with the MCU at this point is for new viewers, I guess, or for casual viewers. They're to tie in everything. There's, there's a bit too much homework to do. Yeah. To understand everything. Correct. And Moon Knight yeah. requires no homework, which is probably, I think, its greatest strength yeah. um, as a show. Agreed. Yeah. Um, yeah, so I mean, overall, I think we all gave positive reviews, uh, some less positive than others. Hadi was effusive. Mine is still positive. 6 out of 10 is a good review. Mm-hmm. Um, so I enjoyed it overall. Mm-hmm. Um, next up, let's move on to the second season um, of a show that me and Hadi once reviewed oh, back in genre equality 22. Yeah. Um, it's called Undone. Um, at the end of the superb sublime, 10 out of 10, yeah. first season of Undone. You know, go go back to listen to genre equality yeah. 22 if, if you want to know why we love it so much. Oh, my God. Um, it was unclear whether Alma, played by Rosa Salazar, um, really had the power to bend space and time, or if she was dealing with mental illness. If the final episode of the season captured such a beautiful sense of hope yeah. in the sense of in the face of adversity that it almost didn't matter mm-hmm. whether Alma had truly been communing with the consciousness of her late father, Jacob Winograd, played by Bob Wardenkirk. Mm-hmm. It was such a perfectly ambiguous end to a perfect season. There was Nothing else on TV, in my opinion, that blended form and function quite like Undone Season 1. Yeah. The show fuses stunning rotoscope yeah. animation to evoke a world where nothing is fixed, existence is fluid, and the fantastical weaves itself around and through the mundane. And luckily for us, the show, which comes from the minds of Raphael Bep, Bob Wexberg and Kate Purdy, um, who earned their animation bona fides with the remarkable black comedy Bojack Horseman, um, they are back for a second season after a nearly three-year hiatus. Mm-hmm. Um, so, okay, it's been three years, right? So I'm assuming a lot of you listeners may not remember what happened. If you don't remember, <laughs> let me give you like a brief recap. Yeah. The series begins with Alma Winograd Diaz, a 20-something mess of a woman who, in the first season, woke up from a car accident to find out that she'd become unstuck in time and space. Mm. So Alma begins to question the nature of her reality, not sure whether she was channeling shamanistic magic or showing signs of schizophrenia. Um, she was visited by her by visions of her long-dead father, Jacob Bob Burenka, who tried to reach her to harness her powers so she can change her fate and rewrite her timeline for a better life. Yep. Meanwhile, her pragmatic sister Becca, her mother Camilla, and her boyfriend Sam tries to pull Alma back into the tangible world and come to grips with what they perceive to be her mental illness. Cut to the start of season two, Alma waits uh, in a strange limbo in a cave to find out whether her bid to rewrite the past in season one works. Turns out, it did. Mm -hmm. Her consciousness has merged with another version of himself from a supposedly happier timeline Mm -hmm. where her father didn't die. Mm -hmm. But Suffice to say, that's plenty more Winograd Diaz family drama on the way. Mm. Just because it seems like it's a happier timeline doesn't mean it is a happier timeline. And this season turns the trauma and the focus away from the father to the mother Camilla. 
exploring her secrets, the ones that she's been hiding from her adult children. If the first season was all about the void, the loss of her patriarch lives behind, the second season tackles the thorniness of mother-daughter relationships. And as Alma and Becca investigate this latest ancestral mystery, mm-hmm. she, dec- she discovers that she and her dad are not the only ones in her family who can go reality surfing. Mm-hmm. Um, Hadi, um, you enjoyed season one as much as I did. I did. Both unanimously gave it yeah. a perfect review. Um, what do you think of season two? Very, very different. Very, very Yeah, I like that. It's very, very different. Yeah. You know, they didn't just repeat uh, what happened, right? Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, this was, uh, I think I read a review where they were saying um, it was like an exploration of trauma, grief, and you know, all that mm. kind of things that from season one, but then done in mm. a way where it was like trying to, where well, it was very ambiguous in season one. Season two was more like, Alma coming to grips with her powers, I guess. She has come to grips with her powers. Yeah. Season 2 focus, focuses on her sister who's exactly. developing similar powers. So, yeah. she gets to be the guide now. Exactly. So, that's awesome. Yeah. Um, yeah. I love uh, the exploration of her, her, you know, more of like her grandma mm. and her mom and like this, like everybody has all this um, generational trauma basically. Um, specifically on the matrilineal side, like, yes. on the matriarchy side. Yes. Yeah. Uh, so I loved all that that they were doing. Um, yeah. I feel that it really, um, it really captured. I mean, it really evolved what undone the possibilities f- uh, for for this kind of um, medium, yeah. mm. You know, where yeah. it really, um, I think. Uh, if it, it took up to the, the the it really took it to another level I feel in season two yeah. uh, and, and therefore I was really surprised because I, I mean remember how good season one was I, I really didn't think that it could top it lah. amazing yeah. yeah and they really did in this in, in, in this season Um, it, it had so many moments where I felt you know you, you could cry you know like mm. it brought you to tears lah, in a lot of moments and I, I really love that lah, uh, when a show does it effortlessly lah for me. Um, yes, yes, yeah. In the end of it, I, I loved how they tied up everything, you know, uh, by episode 8. Um, mm. Is there going to be a third episode, a season? I, I, I personally don't know. Um, I wouldn't mind it considering that I thought they shouldn't have done season 2 and they proved me wrong. Yeah. Um, un- Undone season 2 is a bit like Fleabag season 2 yes. where I thought they should have ended and then, oh boy, you delivered something, something. of equal if not, if not greater quality. Yeah. So, I trust I trust Rafael Bob Wex book. I like um you know, because of Bojack Horseman, because mm. of Tuka and Bertie and all that, he has earned so much of my trust. And I'm like, if you're gonna do season three, go ahead. I'm sure you'll find a fresh take on this. Yeah. Thing. And um, I think that, yeah. again the whole like by the end of the season, there's this whole like uh idea of like um devastation, you know? Mm. But at the same time it's also like that hopefulness that like the ray of hope still lingers, right? Mm. So that that's brilliant. Like again, it's it's kind of a repeat of season one again. Mm, yeah, yeah, end, you know, I, um, yeah. Well, like you know, like I mentioned earlier, the use of rotoscoping, particularly, mm. particularly, is very unusual for TV. You know, it's a very tedious, painterly animation style that involves tracing over recorded footage. Mm-hmm. It's used to create a visual of a of a world constantly in flux. You know, it's a style that you'll be familiar with if you've seen Richard Langletter's um, Waking Life or A Scanner Darkly and things like that, mm-hmm. you know. And Andan uses the technique as a means of stretching, twisting, and reforming reality. Yeah. It's like, you know, the visuals are like Play-Doh, you know, like yeah. empty hallways become infinite mirrors. Characters 
flicker between their childhood and adult selves. Right. History quite literally bleeds Ooh. through the cracks of the current moment. And in the show's world, the world, the walls between the past, present, and future, and between the concrete and the visionary or what is imagined, are porous. You know, and between A twenty four's, you know, quite acclaimed everything everywhere all at once, and Doctor Strange too, as we've talked about, um, the multiverse is most definitely having a moment. Um, but there's an intimacy to Undone that makes it uniquely suited to the small screen. And in my opinion, way better than those movies that I just mentioned. Um, Alma isn't using her gifts to save the entire world. She's focused on getting to the bottom of mysteries within her own family, the lost histories and the intergenerational traumas that shape her and have shaped her loved ones mm-hmm, mm-hmm. into the people that they became. And a big part of what makes Andan so compelling herself, I think, in it, for me, like, is, is Alma, because um, Rosa Salazar, she, she plays this you know, really charming, messy, flawed protagonist with a wry sense of humor and an intense yearning to be understood. And the second season tightens its focus on Alma and Becca's relationship as Alma pushes her more pragmatic sister to explore you know, her own time-shifting abilities. The, the, the two fall into... Other, other people's memories, their own memories, and hop through time, sure, but their sibling dynamic feels grounded and naturalistic. And as in the best genre stories, the magic they do together is in service of the tale of a relationship and the relationships of their loved ones, you know. As the creators did on Bojack, uh-huh. the writers and, and, and the writers and animators stretch the limits of an, animation to evoke the peaks and valleys of mental illness, generation tra- generational trauma, yeah. hidden shame, in a yeah. way that live action cannot. And if you could undo your past mistakes, is what this um, season is asking. Right? If you could really undo your past mistakes, you know, um, I mean, if you have the ability, wouldn't you do it? Yeah. But where does it end? Every piece of trauma done to you is done by someone dealing with their own trauma and so on. Do you keep going further back and then further back and then further back to undo everyone's mistakes and mend everyone's relationship? Like, where does it end? You realize it's impossible, it's impossible. Yeah. Or is it better and healthier to confront your past pain and suffering, acknowledge them, and then forgive yourself and then move on? Yeah. Uh, that's the question of season two. Yep. But really, like, there's kind of no sense trying to explain Undone. It's very hallucinogenic. Right. It's a family, a family dramedy that's made to be experienced. And three years later, Undone is still an emotionally affecting and visually stunning series, okay. unlike anything else on TV. Yeah. Um, now it's time to give our ratings. Hadi, your final thoughts? I'm sorry, I'm just going to give you a 10. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. There's no way because we give it a 10 the first season and it upped its NT, so 10 again. Ma. Yes, yeah. Um, I was briefly considering 9, 9.5, but then I was like, no, like, this, this is a 10 out of 10 season. Okay. Uh, if this isn't a 10, I don't know what's a 10. Um, yeah. Undone again gets a 10 out of 10 season. Yeah. Man, these, these Bojack guys really, really hit it know out what to do, right? To really like wrench out the emotions in us. We jaded mm-hmm. people, right? Yep, yep, definitely, man. Uh, next up, let's turn it over to Isa because we're going to be talking about Love, Death, and Robots let's Volume go. 3, uh, which Isa has seen. What do you think about Love, Death, and Robots Volume 3, the animated anthology from Tim Miller and David Fincher? Wow, wow, wow. Okay, uh, where where do we begin? Where which do one we your begin? favorite one? Oh, okay, that's that's the easiest. The last one is my favorite one. Okay, uh, like hands Jibaro. down, uh, Jibaro is is okay. mind blowing. It is absolutely mind blowing. It is. Uh, the moment I finished it, I texted Hidze and I was just like, uh, I think my message literally like, what the fuck did I just watch? <laughs> right. Mm. Uh, I immediately proceeded to watch uh, watch it a second time, mm-hmm. just because like it it, it was overwhelming. Uh, it very was. honestly, the first time one was really really overwhelming. Uh, but before we get into kind of like the episodes proper itself. Sure. 
you know, I just want to talk about um, Love, Death and Robots in general and how we felt over the last couple of seasons. I, I think yeah. unanimously, we enjoyed the majority of season one. Uh, it, at that point mm-hmm. in time, it was a new kind of, uh, well, not idea necessarily, but the franchise was new. Uh, we got a lot of very interesting kind of shots. Uh, we were wowed by a lot of the uh, animation that was going back there, even if not necessarily all the stories for season one. Uh, season two was kind of meh, right? That was yeah. kind of our overall uh, feelings for that. I mean, it's still great artistry and like, in terms of like um, the detail to like certain CGI stuff that they did were quite mind-blowing. Mm, yes, I uh, agree. Te- technically, it has never faulted yeah. on a technical yeah. level. Just yeah. what I think yeah. the stories was a bit like uh, bland. Mm. Yeah. yeah, I totally yeah. agree. And the fact that we've gotten, it's basically roughly on average been about a two-year gap between seasons, right? And Mm -hmm. how much the technology improves within those two years or at least the products that we see because these things are within development uh, as as the um, seasons get released, right? Yeah. Mm. It's kind of mind-blowing, right? So season two, uh, more technical triumph, less great storytelling in our humble opinion uh, Mm -hmm. as per our last review. Season three, I think, hands down, is the best season we've gotten so far. Uh, uh, it was very easy for us to just kind of like get into that. A lot of them were novel ideas, if not uh, downright terrifying um, in terms of like what they were trying to capture. Again, just being wowed with some of the possibilities of what um, computer-generated graphics can do for us mm-hmm. uh, in this day and age. Uh, what were some of you guys' favorite episodes outside of Jibaro? We'll save that just kind of for last. Sure, sure. Uh, sure. Um, yeah, Hadi. Okay, so for me, I really enjoyed um the the red one, Mason's Reds. Oh, Mason's yeah. Red. Yeah, that was yeah, that was It was cute. like Duck Pixar, I think. That that that's uh, what <laughs> that's I think how you can describe it, right? It's like Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah, for sure. Uh, the story is so simple, right? It's just a farmer trying to get rid of rats. Yes. Sentient rats though. Sentient rats, yeah, yeah, yeah. And yeah. you know, him and and just the the way that um a simple story and just great uh, graphics now, which I enjoyed and just the little emotional um resonance you know where at the end even the farmer thought oh, this was too much yep. uh, yeah yeah it had a very apocalyptic war movie feel correct. from the point of view of a farmer trying to get rid of pests yeah. you know um, it, it, it be, it's a beautiful it beautifully balanced the tone of the the war movie apocalypse and just the humor of you know yeah uh this farmer buying like insane gadgets exactly. like really really insane mechanical gadgets mm. to like get rid of of the pest yeah I, I like that one as yeah. well yeah and I think the other one that really stuck uh, stuck out for me was the very pulse of the machine mm. yeah that was my that was my personal favorite the very pulse of the machine mm. is is my number one episode for this season why is it your yeah. number one episode. Um, the writing and storytelling is very my vibe. Mm-hmm. Um, I enjoyed like Jibaro on a visual level Same. as a piece of art, yeah. certainly. But the very pulse of the machine, um, speaks to me more from a writerly standpoint. Uh, the, the it, it does to me what Andan does to me. You know, yes. like I wasn't sure whether she was actually you know, this was this was a real planet talking to, her or whether she was hallucinating. Okay. Um, but but either way, it it works either way. It depends on you. Like I like the ambiguity of same, it, same. and 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 also the beauty of the animation. Okay. Also, like, it's gorgeous to watch and ends on a particularly poetic note. You know, a yeah, lot of the yes. episodes feel like tone poems. Not all the episodes are actual poems. This episode is literally quoting poems. Here. Yes. yes. <laughs> like, um. Yeah. Yeah. That was my favorite. Episode. Nice. Um. 
I think I think Isas already mentioned um, Jibaru, right? Yes. But before we get into Jibaru, the uh, other highlights include David Fincher's first attempt mm-hmm, with animation mm-hmm. in Bad Bad Traveling. Yeah. Um, this horrifying tale of a group of sailors accosted by a giant hungry crab. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, you know, there's also like a very Cthulian um, uh, Call of Duty type uh, <laughs> thing happening uh, in episode five. You know. Yeah. Yeah. Lo- lots of good ones. There's a there's a zombie short film, The Night of the Mini Days, oh, that, that is actually really really en- enjoyable a bird's eye view of an undead apocalypse yeah. showing a sped up version of events with an adorable art style yeah. that kind of looks like Starcraft you know yeah. um, it's like a, it's like a, a time lapse of our demise at the hands of zombies yeah, yeah. Yeah. That was really, really fun. Um, any any other um, standout highlights that you would like to mention before we get into the final episode? Um, I think there's a, there's like a sequel right with three robots? Yes. Yes correct. Yeah, that's uh, that was fun because yes. at the end of the day the cats were in masks so yeah. Yeah, I, I do feel yeah. like Three Robots, I didn't quite really... Uh, um, it, it grew on me, I think, with the sequel coming out, right? Like, I Same. would watch a, a, a kind of mini-series just with these three guys going about their shenanigans. Right? I, 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 I like it because that. it was exploring mankind's um, own hubris. Yes. Mm. And also, obviously, you know, through the eyes of sentient robots. La. Yeah. So, I like that. La. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. 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 Uh, yeah. For me, the weakest was Kill Team Kill, I think. <laughs> Uh, it was. Oh, I yeah, mean, yeah, like yeah. the the art style was kind of like interesting, and yeah. but the story wasn't. The story yeah, that was more the art style was the the way it was strong at like, Yeah, definitely. Yeah. Because yeah. the story was super simple. <laughs> yes. Uh, yeah. I do agree with Hitze. I think like the very pulse of the machine felt like the most apt for this anthology series. Mm, like, I yes. felt like that this is Love, Death and Robot at its strongest, right? Uh, bad Travelling, as much as I loved what Fincher did with that and as good as the story is, felt a bit out of place uh, with just the overall vibe of what uh, uh, what Love, Death and Robot has been. Is it because far. it's old timey? Uh well not necessarily I I think like I was expecting a lot more sci-fi from yeah. the series right and I think this is one of the first few times where more fantasy clearly yes more fantasy it felt it felt like a D&D game like, yeah, like straight agree, up right agree, yeah. uh and and I completely enjoyed that but it did feel a bit <clears throat> out of place in terms of you know um what Love Death and Robots has sold itself to be up till this point in time whereas mm. the very pulse of the machine would be the epitome of that right with like grand ideas um you know an interesting storyline and just kind of pulling from the possibilities of like a future that is 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 kind of uh, rendered through what our our computers can do yeah right mm. uh swarm to me was also fairly interesting mm. uh i, I mean tropical. some of it some of it felt tropey. A mm. lot of it felt very Matrix-esque. Mm. Uh, but there were moments in time where it was just quite wow, right? Like, just yeah. like the ability to capture a hive kind of mind within uh, this itself was cool, uh, but also something that's not new, right? Yeah, exactly. Mm. Uh, which kind of brings us, I guess, to the standout, whether or not it's your personal favourite. It is very hard to ignore Jibaro. Mm. Uh, mm. It is... Um, by far the strangest and most visually shocking, I guess. I, I don't think shocking even quite cuts it. Uh, the most visually prominent of anything that has ever appeared on this anthology series in its three seasons. Mm-hmm. Uh, what did you guys feel upon first watching Jabaro? I mean, uh, when I was looking through, I mean, when I first watched it, I, I was thinking, okay, like, it's a story of like conquistadors, like in the middle of, like, the Amazon or something, right? Mm. Yeah. And then, like, yep. just this mystical goddess of the river or whatever. Lah. 
Yeah. Siren. A, yeah, a siren uh. like fucks them up. Uh. <laughs> but then, I mean, like I said, the story was simple enough, but it was that visual style, you know, of them, wow, how they drew the, 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 everything from the conquistadors to the, to the, to the goddess, uh, the siren itself. And, you know, that, and the brutality of it at certain yeah. points, I was like, wow, not bad. Really, really visually engaging throughout. Mm-hmm. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. Hey, about how about you? Like, uh, what was what was kind of your like first take on Jabaro as as you were watching the first time around? Uh, I thought it was a beautiful piece of art. You know, in terms of um on a technological level, on an artistry level, um this is probably the height of Love, Death, and Robots in terms of artistry. Yes. Um. Yeah. I I thought it was just stunning to behold. Um. Not quite understanding what I was watching, <laughs> but being 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 entranced anyway. Yeah. Um. It felt like this really, uh guttural rave Ooh. that I was, I was I was involved in you know yeah. um it, it it really felt like you know I was like high on something and on drugs yeah. and, like in a rave in a rave at like 5 a.m yeah uh and just like going with it yeah it it, it was an experience to me it was an experiential masterpiece if not a storytelling masterpiece at least it's an yeah. experiential masterpiece yes I totally agree with you I I think story-wise there isn't it, it's a simple kind of story, right? Like, and, and it's nothing like brand new necessarily. Uh, the yeah. visual style is obviously super obvious, like from the way that they decided to color everything, uh, from the kind of like makeup and costuming that was done, uh, if we can call it makeup and costuming, given that most of it is, is CGI anyway. Uh, yeah. What caught me the kind of the most, and I only realized this upon watching it the second time, I think uh, I found it uh, incredibly overwhelming uh, just because there were so many... Uh, sensorial cues at the same time, mm. right? Like from the jitters that they kind of worked into the movement pieces, from mm. the very dance-like uh, 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 movements of the the uh, well, I guess actors and and and, and creatures as well. Uh, but for me, with the kind of standout thing, or rather, what was most uh, salient to me uh, upon watching mm. it the second time yeah. was the sound design, right? And just mm. like the way that they decided to play with this entire idea. Yeah, sure, we have a. The deaf know, guy, the deaf, the deaf knight, um, like the DAF, huh? Not yeah, DAF, yeah, DAF. Uh, we're we're talking, you know, uh, hard of hearing, not um, <laughs> not <artists. dead. laughs> uh, um, but yeah, and how they played with that, I think, had a bigger impact on me the first time around I watched it than I knew, at in the moment, right? Because there is so visually stunning. Uh, that you kind of forget that like that only sits at the back of your mind and you kind of receive that passively uh, yep. and I put my headphones on for the second time round just to kind of like be a bit more immersed in the entire experience uh, and it's it's genius it really is quite amazing the things and the detail and the effort that they put into what I think a lot of people watching Jabaro uh, may not necessarily focus on given everything that is presented on the screen itself Mm. Um, you know, whether it's like kind of muting things down, whether it's like the very kind of like off-kilter uh, score that's, that they're using coming out very, very subtly in the background uh, to the, the strange screams and the strange like groans that are, are being emitted within the context of the story and the struggle and the conflict that's going on on screen. Uh, like yep. all of that forms its own, uh, it, it forms its own story. Right, like you could possibly just listen to Jibaro without watching it and be, and achieve a similar effect, you know. Mm. And to have those two things like kind of stack together to me was a lot. It was a lot in uh, maybe not necessarily a good way, 
but a lot in a way that has been the most unique thing I've experienced in a while in an animated short. Uh, yep. and and for that reason, like it is definitely the standout. While may not necessarily be my personal favorite, if anything, I'm gonna say if you want something to kind of like blow your mind, right, mm-hmm. on multiple levels, uh, Jibaro is it. If there's one thing mm-hmm. that you watch, watch Jibaro. But season three is definitely worth catching. Yes. Okay. Yeah. Um. Overall, I'll, I'll rate season three an eight out of ten. Uh, which I think is the highest I've rated any of the seasons. What about you, Hadi? Oh, that's a good one. Eight out of ten. Yeah, I agree with that. I'll give it an eight out of ten. Actually, you know yeah, what? Eight point okay. five, lah. Oh, nice. Okay. Yeah, I I'm gonna give it. I'm gonna give it an eight out of ten as well. I feel like there was only one kind of weak episode here. Uh, mm. technologically, like leaps and bounds yet again. I think like in Vaulted Halls on Tomb, the opening sequence had me believing that it was live uh, live action. Uh, which is nuts is absolutely nuts um as they kind of like did that that kind of zooming in onto the the squad i was like damn it yep. looks so fucking real um mm. but yeah uh i am very happy uh that season 3 has become stronger as it's gone along because with season 2 i was worried that this was kind of not going anywhere yeah. or they were yep. kind of resting on the laurels of the fact of a, a extremely popular uh, season 1 so I'm ex- yeah. I'm excited to see. I don't see. I mean, I definitely see this anthology series continuing, given uh, the kind of work that has been put out and how well received it's been so far. I'm hoping mm. that w- the likes of like Jabaro and uh, the very powers of the machine uh, will continue to inspire people who are going to do like future episodes of this to push the boundaries of what's possible visually, uh, aesthetically, and conceptually. Because um, yep. like at the moment, like I don't. That, that that hasn't been anything, I guess, as uniquely varied as uh, what's been presented in season three of Love, Death, and Robots. Agreed. Yeah. Yes, 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 yeah. Uh, very high ratings from all of us. Next up, let's move on to the big screen where I'll be talking about The Northman, Ooh, uh, which is the third film from arthouse auteur Robert Eggers. Um, the Northman is a savage and ferocious 10th century Norse revenge epic That's cool. that is bound to leave viewers quite awestruck. Mm. Um, it begins in 895 AD yep. in the kingdom of King Aravandil, uh, played by Ethan Hawke. We, <coughs> we, find, we find a ruler returning from battle yeah. to initiate his 10-year-old son, Emleth, mm-hmm. as heir to his throne. Mm-hmm. Um, however, soon after the hallucinat- hallucinatory ceremony, which was conducted by uh, William the Fool, Jaime the Fool, who plays the court jester slash shaman. Arambandil is betrayed by his brother, Fionir, played by Klaus Bang, who murders him and claims his wife, Queen Gudrun, mm-hmm. played by Nicole Kidman. What a cast. Yep. Uh, Amazing. Claims his wife for, for himself. The young prince flees to sea, vowing to avenge his father mm-hmm. and save his mother mm-hmm. and kill um, Fionir. Um, you cut to 9, 930 AD, where the prince has grown into a muscular and monstrous Viking berserker, yeah. <laughs> played by Alexander Skarsgård, who is prowling the lands of Eastern Europe, pillaging Slavic villages. He is calcified by rage. Amleth is like a legendary terror right now, vacillating between animistic ruthlessness and moments of pensive humanity. Mm-hmm. In the aftermath of a particular raid, Amleth kind of wanders trance-like and encounters a seer played by Bjork, who tells him that his time for vengeance has come. Mm-hmm. Happenstance brings Amleth into the clutches of Fionir, 
who has lost the throne and is now running a farm in the wilds of Iceland. Mm-hmm. Disguising himself as a slave, Amleth infiltrates the farm, discovering that his mother is now married to Fiona and has borne him a son. Um, with the help of fellow slave, Olga, played by Anya Taylor-Joy, uh, who is also a sorceress, um, Amleth begins to exact his brutal, bloody, horrific retribution. Um, fans of Agassiz's small-scale features will be surprised by the scale of this historical saga. Mm-hmm. But while this is his most accessible film to date, but I think the director's unconventional sensibilities, which you know um, he honed in The Witch and The Lighthouse and stuff, it yeah. really makes this more than just your typical historical... Uh, Mythological epic. You know? epic. Yeah, yeah, you know, the, 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 the Norman is far more ambitious yeah. uh, than his previous films, but he remains a stickler also for historical detail yep. with the sets and costumes and artifacts and the way of life designed to be as period accurate as possible. Mm-hmm. But amidst the meticulous attention to, you know, the muddy, bloody, grime-caked authenticity, Agus is still keen to present the religious beliefs and myths of the time yep. as matter-of-factly as his settings, conditions, and culture. Mm-hmm. Like, the Norman's flights into the mystical are steeped in Viking and Nordic beliefs of the time, yep. and the fantastical interludes include Amleth communing with an astral projection, fighting an undead skeleton to claim a magic sword, mm-hmm. um, chatting to the disembodied head of an old friend. Mm-hmm. These moments are allowed to be fanciful and thrilling, but like the witch and the lighthouse, they aren't supernatural to the characters. These things are just as real as the harshness of the cold, or the blood spilled in warfare. And these things are real to them, so they are real to us. Mm-hmm. Um, to ensure fidelity, Agus teamed up with Icelandic novelist and screenwriter Sjorn to dig into Viking history, culture, sagas, poems, and Danish legends. Um, and the particular legend that he's drawn upon is the legend of Prince Amleth, yeah. which famously became the source of Shakespeare's Hamlet. Yep. Uh, mm-hmm. Hamlet is an anagram of Amleth. Um, so if you find the story familiar, this is why. Yeah. <laughs> but the Norman is not Shakespearean. No. No. It is proto-Shakespearean. Yes. Um, Amleth is a feral beast with a singular goal without any of Hamlet's angst. And this, the story is decidedly unromantic about the era. It disregards any classical ideas of morality yeah. or heroism. Yeah. Um, the Norman lives and breathes like the old epics. And I, I don't mean old Hollywood's cartoonish depictions of warriors with shiny helmets mm. or, even, or even the plays and the literature of the Renaissance, mm-hmm. but the truly, truly ancient tales to which Agus is paying deep respect. Yeah. In dramatizing the internal tug of war of Ambler, for example, the, the grim fated destiny and the, you know, the opportunity for a more mundane life as a farmer, and Agus sort of indulges in both the grand folklore of the Viking Age and the commonplace reality that shapes the people living in it, you know, successfully creating an uncivilized odyssey that feels grounded in the demands of civilization. Mm-hmm. It has an outstanding ensemble, outstanding cinematography, um, mm-hmm. the, the actors brave bitter shooting conditions and they spout outlandishly accented dialogue, but it all makes sense in the context of the film. Mm-hmm. There is an unparalleled immersion into this intensely alien world, right down to a naked final battle between Fionio and Amleth atop an active volcano <laughs> that will make your jaw drop. The Norman is, is truly a staggering feat of filmmaking. It's primordial and punishing and blood-soaked with raging testosterone, you know. Mm-hmm. There is no, like wokeness to this film at all. There is no like um, commentary on toxic masculinity. It is it, just masculinity, especially 10th century Viking masculinity. <laughs> um, it is interesting to see 
Um, and it, in an era where big budget historical epics have fallen by the wayside uh-huh. to more vaporous superhero adventures, it's great to see indie filmmakers like David Lowry, who recently did The Green Knight, uh-huh. and Robert Eggers sort of unexpectedly revitalize this historical epic genre. Um, I dug this. Uh, Hadi, you saw this as well, yes. right? What oh my think? god. Yeah. This is so freaking awesome. Uh, yeah. Like, I, I agree with everything that you said. Um, yeah. So beautifully filmed, so beautifully told the story of um, MLF, right? Mm. Um, that fight scene at the volcano, holy shit. Yeah. Like, really. And, you know, uh, the historical accuracy, you know, super well done, but I really love the homages to the, 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 to the myth of the, the, of these people, uh, um, you know, mm. the, the Scandinavian people, uh. Yeah, um, Valkyries just popping yeah, up out of nowhere. Right? Yeah. Everything. And, yeah. uh, you know, because, okay, it's so recent, you know, I think all of us are quite familiar with Viking lore, right? Mm. Uh, through comics, you know, through, um, through video games, through, you know, shows. La. The show Viking? Exactly, you know, which was <laughs> also quite a realistic uh, portrayal to an extent. La. To an extent, la, they were wearing biker leather and stuff. Yeah, like, yeah. Quite, to, quite... to an extent. <laughs> And it, it was the history channel, like they didn't have the budget. Exactly. For this kind of thing. And still yeah, it was still yeah. a very compelling tale though. Mm-hmm. And so to see this on the big screen, right? And how visceral it was, oh, it was such a lovely thing. Um honestly, um uh, Alexander Skarsgard was born to play this guy. Mm. Like just <laughs> seriously, like he was put on this earth to play Emlove. And I think he did such a great job and um great uh great, great stuff uh by uh Robert Eggers, right? Yep. Yeah, and um, yeah, hundred percent. You, you, everybody needs to watch this. I mean, I, I hate the whole like comment because this became a problematic film. Like, a lot of people, uh, a lot of this woke shit stuff, uh, you know, started uh going against this film, like, saying that it was promoting like toxic masculinity and shit like that. A celebration of it, yeah. is what they were saying. I'm like, but on, but to counterpoint that, like. This was 10th century masculinity, exactly. especially among Vikings. Yeah, I'm like, yeah, because they say, oh, this all these white supremacist groups are taking this film as you know, uh, what? So what? Like, that's not the point. The point of the film is to showcase the historical accuracy of that time. I mean, to an extent, lah, Also, hmm. uh, but to showcase uh, to how much um a certain kind of lost um civilization, lah, in a sense, you know. Mm, yep, yeah. Yep. But again, yeah, I I rate this film like a eight and a eight and a half out of ten. I'll rate this an eight out as well. Yeah. I think Isa is watching it next week, so uh, yeah, we're we're psyched for this man. Mm-hmm. Uh, next up, Hadi. Um, sorry oh, to do this no. to you, but um, let's since go, you're, Hadi. Uh, you're an avid player of the game uh, Halo, so can you tell us a bit about season one of Halo? Fuck this TV series. Seriously, it was made for what? <laughs> for who? For you, my friend. Oh my but god, it's not so, so bad. Like you have such okay. I mean, <sighs> okay. So Halo has established a law in the video game uh, scene, right? So uh, over five, over six, seven games, um, and so the law is very well established among fans. I wouldn't say I'm like a super huge fan, but I'm a fan enough to know enough about the law and enough mm. to know about the main character, Master Chief. Yeah. Right. Or Master Chief John. Yeah. Uh, I'm just... This is one of those, like, you, you really feel like it's a money grab. Mm. Uh, this show has... I feel that it, it, it placates no one. Because if, let's say, you're, you're just someone who doesn't know anything about Halo and watch this, you'll be like, ah, oh, so this is just another tropey sci-fi bullshit thing. Mm. 
Yep. You know, there's no redeeming. I, I'm sorry, but there's really no redeeming qualities about this show. Uh, yep. Except, okay, perhaps the costume design, I, I, I would say that that was top notch. Uh, mm-hmm. Very accurate to the games. Okay, I'll give it that. Um, okay. However, everything else can go fuck itself. Like, yeah. the, the, <laughs> the way that the Spartans were, the Spartans are basically the heroes of this, um, well, kind of like the super soldiers, okay? Yep. How they were portrayed and all that was so mishandled. Um, mm. The law was so mishandled on all fronts. Uh, the acting was so bad. Like, I can forgive you if your acting was good or your script was good also. Yeah. But they didn't have that. It was so tropey or so like, like phone it in kind of sci-fi script it was so generic you know uh, and that was the the, 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 the main thing la. like if you really were trying to get people to g- come and watch it without having to play the video games right no mm. one would and, and they had so many unlikable characters like I couldn't root for anybody there's like this yep. secondary character this uh, this girl that wants to free her homeland and shit right Mm-hmm. She turned out to be the worst character in the, the, the entire series. Every time I watch her parts, I like had to grit my teeth and watch through it, you know. Until, <laughs> yep. until the last two episodes, right, I literally just skipped through her entire storyline because I couldn't mm. give a fuck anymore. And I think they miscast Master Chief himself. Okay, why? Yes and no, because when I say they miscast him, it's because they took off his helmet in the first episode. Mm. You know like how Mandalorian... Uh waited very long before he took out his helmet. Yep. Yeah. Some, that is something that Master Chief's identity surrounds. Like, he's, you know, but then also that's because they want you to be the player, they, you know, on the ground, whatever. Lah. They want you to be Master Chief in the game. Lah, so that's why they don't remove the helmet. But because of that, you know, you, there's this mystery surrounding who Master Chief really is. Mm. And he turns out to be just this weird, emotional... Psycho lah. I don't know how to explain, but this was such a bad series. I'm so sorry. Halo, yeah. I, I'm just going to give a rating of like a 0.5 out of 10. Okay, yeah. I give the 0.5 is because really the costume designs were on point. And the, like the, okay. the ship CGI, the 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 law accuracy is there, but they just didn't know how to make use of it. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So yeah, yeah. let's uh, say it better. So let's move on. Alright, um, so Halo should have been the Mandalorian and instead it ended up being Boba Fett. Exactly. <laughs> Actually worse. No, no, I, I, but, but what you're saying, like, you know, he should have, you know, kept his um, helmet on and everything and correct, Boba correct, Fett just correct, re- correct. refused to put on his helmet. And then you you discover who yeah. Boba Fett is. He ended up being like this weird guy who's incompetent at everything. Yeah. Alright, exactly. You know what? Yeah, that 100%. Okay, good, good, good. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Agree, agree, agree. <laughs> yeah. Um, okay. Uh, next up is quick hits. So I'll quickly run through some of the films and TV shows my co-host has not been able to see. Sure. First off, and my favorite of quick hits is a movie called X, oh, okay. which is a horror film. X is about a pawn shoot uh-huh. that goes terribly wrong and becomes the scene of a gruesome massacre in rural backwoods Texas. A twenty four's X feels like a throwback to old school grindhouse horror, mm. slicing and dicing through a cast of very likable nineteen seventies pawn stars and filmmakers, uh, but a Amidst a pile of gnarly kills and nauseating gore, this grungy and dirty film somehow also manages to strike a smart balance between exploitation and empowerment, there's tension, a proper fleshiness that makes the audience wince, mm. uh, and the actors seem to be really enjoying themselves. Mm. It's an entertaining 
and repugnant. I mean repugnant in a good way. Um, but beyond that, this is a slasher film that moves beyond simple slaughter. Oh, okay. the, the director expands into broader discussions of religion, mm-hmm. sexuality, and gender in America, specifically in 1970s America, where you know cultural mores were changing, therefore making X a slasher joyride with something more to say. This is a 8.5 out of 10 for me. Nice. Uh, next up, I'm going to talk about Vampire in the Garden, which is the new anime coming to you from Wit Studio via <sighs> Netflix. Um, it's another enemy about the last remnants of humanity hiding from monsters by building a giant wall around them. Um, in the world of Vampire by the Garden, humanity is displaced from the position of dominance when vampires show up and defeats them in a great war. It's Attack on Titan, essentially. Um, the humans live in a small-scale city-state protected by a massive wall of light. Uh, it's become the last stronghold for the human race, um, etc., etc., you know. Um, this show really sucks in every way. Okay. Um, yeah, it's... Less said about it, the better. Right. Do not watch the show. It is a 3 out of 10 for All me. Right. Next up, I'm going to move on to Amazon Prime hmm. to talk about Night Sky. Night Sky is a series <coughs> centering around Franklin and Irene York, who are played by J.K. Simmons hmm. and C.C. Spacek, who star as an older couple who years ago discovers a chamber buried in your backyard, which inexplicably leads to a strange deserted planet. Oh. Um They've carefully guarded their secrets ever since, but when an enigmatic young man enters their lives, the York's quiet existence is quietly upended, and the mysterious portal slash chamber that they thought they knew so well turns out to be much more than they could have ever imagined. As expected, Spacek and Simmons are a true highlight, with their relationship feeling lived in and soulful. These two are actors of our times, um, more than just my generation, the previous generation as well. These two are fantastic actors. But beyond the, I would say, S-tier acting showcase... Uh-huh. This show is very dull and poorly paced and frustrating. Okay. Um, this could have been a really, really great 90-minute movie, but instead it's eight hours long. So that's why it's a 4 out of 10 for me. Uh... Uh, next up, I'm going to move on to The Time Traveler's Wife. It's HBO's adaptation of Audrey Nifanega's incredible 2003 sci-fi novel, mm. The Time Traveler's Wife. Mm. It hopes to do justice to a great story after a 2009 movie starring Rachel McAdams failed miserably. Mm-hmm. Um, the series follows the story of a marriage unmoored by a husband's tendency to skip through time. Mm. The husband, Henry, is unstuck in history, vanishing from linear time to pop up at key moments of importance. This is what leads his romance with his wife, Claire, to its sense of destiny. As in adulthood, he was transported to meet her as a child. Um, so she was seemingly uh, fated to be an important figure in his life. Um, it's also what gives the marriage its air of doom. Hen- Henry cannot meaningfully be present when he's always moments away from being snatched into the past. And the fact that Claire has met Henry at various ages, but never as a senior citizen, suggests a premature end lies ahead. The tragedy and swoonworthiness of the novel seems perfect to capture the mainstream. Sadly, the show is even worse than the movie. Mm. It is clunky, stupid, lacks momentum. And features dialogue wait, wait, wait. that would make worse than the movie. It is worse than the oh, movie, wow. and it features dialogue that will make Twilight seem like it was written by Aaron Sorkin. No. This is truly one of the worst <laughs> series I've, I've ever seen, um, and a great guidebook for um, any pedophiles who want to groom young girls. Uh, so yeah, this is a, a zero out of ten for me. Uh, yeah, very few shows have earned, have earned a zero, but this really earns oh my a God. zero. Okay, got it. Um, to cap off our regular portion of the episode, Hardy, let's talk about uh, season one I'm of Picard. Yeah, you're back again. Picard. Uh, okay, actually, you know what? Picard yeah. season two. No, no, it still sucks, lah. So, oh, sorry, uh, season two of Picard. 
my bad. Yeah. Uh, it still sucks. Uh, okay. So this time is uh, you know the whole time traveling thing, lah. Okay. Yep. Uh, Q is back, right? Yeah. Sure. Uh, okay. For what I also don't know, lah. Uh, also, I mean the whole travelers thing, also the whole from Star Trek, uh, TNG, sure. right? Where yep. it was just one guy, I think. Mm-hmm. Now it's, I mean, now mm-hmm. we are introduced to the whole society of them. Yep. And um, so that's a cool little cameo because Wesley Crusher comes back. Mm-hmm. And uh, to ident- I mean, he is now a traveler, lah. Yes. Yeah. So I thought that was kind of cool because it was really hinted in TNG. Yeah. yeah, so that was like a cool callback and all that. Um, but apart from that, uh, I would say that Patrick Stewart as Picard, you know, there's can't go wrong in terms of the acting lah. Mm. So you can't fault him for this. Okay, ah, you know what? I I I read somewhere. Uh, I I read a review where they called it the NCIS Starfleet. Okay. <laughs> I think that's the perfect uh perfect way to describe season two. Mm. Yeah. So there's a um, I think it's an slight improvement from season one okay um i i sometimes dig the whole uh i mean i dig the whole like traveling back in time kind of thing and then they mm-hmm. stayed there for quite a while to solve certain issues with the like the whole launch of europa and all that stuff right okay um yeah so i think it's a it's a improvement but it's still something that you can miss it still doesn't pique my interest as a star trek fan lah um, what is worse, Discovery or Picard? Uh, Discovery, sadly. La. Oh, wow. Yeah. Okay. Because I, I, I've, I've not followed up on Discovery Season 4 and Picard Season 2, so I'm not, I wasn't sure which yeah, one was worse I, by I'll, now. I would say that uh, Picard right now is a little better than Discovery, but both still shitty. Thank God for Star Trek Strange New Worlds. Which that. we'll be talking about in two months, you know, once the season I ends. I can't wait. Um, can't wait. I'm already good. I already I know I've written my review. It's gonna be a good one. I love Star Trek Strange New yeah. Worlds. It's a return to form. And if you're if you're a Trekkie who really loves Star Trek, the classic Star Trek, the formula of uh, you know, just the, the good old old schoolness of Star Trek, Strange New World brings mm. that. Um and to top it all off, um the Orville is also back next week. Oh nice. Oh um, sorry, before one more last thing about Star Trek Picard, right? Sure. Like, why is Starfleet still calling Picard to solve their shit? Like, can't they? Don't they have other like younger guys who have you know? Okay, never mind. <laughs> like this guy's a freaking uh, what? Like he's ninety years old already. You know, like stop calling him back to help you. Yeah. Um. I. I. I, I know this is a very like niche joke, but I. I saw someone write on Twitter that Starfleet is basically WWE right now. They're just calling back guys <laughs> from the nineties. Yeah. You know. Um. Picard is your Goldberg or whatever. You know. <laughs> Yeah, like just 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 bring us part timers because we can't make new stars. So the yeah, so the best uh Star Trek show Orville is coming back lah. The be- best Star Trek show Orville is coming back, and Strange Worlds is actually you know sort of redeeming the Star Trek franchise as well. Yeah. So we'll talk about that in a couple of months. Nice. Uh, to cap off this episode, this is the first installment of something I want to call Quick Hits Classics, Ooh. where I talk about um, you know, I'll be recommending like what is in my opinion the some of the greatest films or TV shows that we've not had a chance to talk about on genre sure. quality, you know, great, great genre from past years. Mm-hmm. The first one I'll be recommending is Rosemary's Baby. Oh, wow. Um, AKA, in my opinion, the original A24 horror film wow. that, that, <laughs> that predates A24 by over half a century. Yeah. Um, if, if you think that A24's art house, slow burn, psychological horror is something they invented, 
let me tell you, it's not. Mm-hmm. That style is a throwback to great movies like this one mm-hmm. from the mid-60s. This, this was Roman Polanski's first American feature, yeah. and it stars Mia Farrow and John Cassavetes mm-hmm. as a likable young couple who move into a flat in a rundown New York building. Yep. Unbeknownst to them, the building has a sordid history of violence involving political corruption, satanic cults, and cannibalistic so- uh, serial killers. Mm-hmm. The first hour of the movie is pure, amazing character building as we spend time with the character in their mundane day-to-day. We get to see them love each other, they're personable, they're funny. It's so good that you forget that you're supposed to be watching a horror movie. I could easily watch a naturalistic series about this young married couple just doing things and having conversations. All these serves to get us invested in these people. It's the kind of character building that horror movies abandoned from the 70s all the way to the 2000s in favour of gore and shock. Mm. We see that the husband is a struggling actor, unable to get his big break, and we're invested in their quest to have a baby. Once they become friends with their overly friendly elderly neighbours, who may or may not be witches, Mm -hmm. uh, their fortunes suddenly take a turn for the better. They're given good luck charms and food and drinks, you know, um, as housewarming presents. All these things smell a little weird because they're filled with unknown herbs and roots their neighbours have grown. Suddenly, the husband becomes a successful actor. A role he desperately wants suddenly opens up when his competitor mysteriously goes blind. Rosemary, the wife, gets nauseous and dizzy after eating a chocolate mousse. Mm-hmm. Um, suddenly, she passes out. She has a dream that she's tied down by a satanic cult, which includes a new member, her husband. She, she's then raped by a demon yep. or a demonic-looking creature. Mm-hmm. The next morning, she's pregnant. Yep. Um, all, all their dreams seem to be coming true, but Rosemary suspects that something strange and unnatural is going on. Yeah. But she has no solid evidence of anything. The idea that her neighbours are Satanists and that her husband has joined them for career success and that she's been poisoned and drugged by magical herbs all seem ludicrous to her friends. Mm. She even gets a prestigious new doctor to take care of her pregnancy, courtesy of their generous neighbours. And this doctor gaslights her at every turn, explaining away every unnatural sickness, every unnatural turn as prepartum hysteria. Her friends, who recommend that she get a second opinion or find a new doctor, they wind up dead in suicides or suddenly fall into deep comas. Up until the end, we are never actually really sure if Rosemary's suspicions are true or just paranoia. Yeah. And that's the brilliance of this film. It's pure thrilling suspense because the audience is just like Rosemary. One minute we are sure something is sinister and supernatural is going on. Mm-hmm. The next minute we think it's just coincidence and we are letting our imaginations run, run wild. The movie gaslights you, the viewer, just like Rosemary because I was gaslit the whole way. I wasn't sure. Uh. Hey, is this real? Is this a coincidence? You know? Outside of Rosemary's dream sequences where she gets raped by the devil mm-hmm. and becomes the subject of arcane rituals, there's nothing overtly super- supernatural going on. You know? But the book that this is based on and Polanski's expert movie ground their fear of, demonic, of the demonic in very common anxieties of first-time mothers. You know? um, everyone Rosemary rants to dismisses her conspiracy theories as the typical overreaction of someone about to have a child. And in fairness... What she's saying does sound ludicrous, you know. Rosemary's Baby isn't a horror movie in the typical things that go boo sense. Um, Polanski, who also wrote the screenplay following the novel, is more interested in creating a creeping sense of unease by making everything seem plausible. Nearly every supernatural incident in Rosemary's Baby can be read as a dream Mm -hmm. the heroine is having, exacerbated by her ordinary worries about an insensitive husband who's always ducking out for suspicious reasons or about intrusive neighbours who aren't shy about sharing their opinions or about doctors with all kinds of weird, unconfirmable advice on diet and health you know, for expectant mothers. It, 
it matters too that all this is happening in, in New York, a city that's already full of kooky characters and old buildings with their own twisted histories, you know. Stuff that is weird elsewhere is normal for New York. Mm-hmm. And, and it matters because it's taking place in the mid-60s where Rosemary falls between a generation of submissive housewives and a generation of self-actualized feminists. Mm. She's caught in the middle of that generational gap there. That all adds to an added layer of subtext. This is a horror movie by definition, but it plays more like a thriller. Yeah. A thriller that we are held to a limited point of view, depicting protagonists who are alone and unsure of whom to trust. It's a horror about gaslighting, corruption, isolation, and the feeling of not being believed. This is such a sublime and sophisticated work drawing upon primal fears and imagery and hiding all of it in a modern, rational context. This is one of my favorite horror films of all time. Mm. I urge you to watch it if you haven't. Have either of you seen Rosemary's Baby? Long yes, I ago. have. Maybe like 20 years ago. Wow, you were very young then. Right? Yeah, I was, in my, I was in secondary school. Oh, damn. Nice. I think primary, I said like sec 2 or sec 3. I think it was like a, on, uh, the town's LD. Ooh. Yeah, this is where you had to, yeah, okay. to, to flip it over. Yeah, and we had side A, side B, right? So, but because the movie is quite long, I think there was like two LDs, so like side one, side two, side three, side four. Yep, yep. Yeah, uh, I remember it scaring the shit out of me when I was young. Mm. Uh, but I think I'm going to rewatch it after, I mean, your little soliloquy there, right? <laughs> uh, nice. I feel that I'm going to. No, no, I really appreciate it. Like, I really want to watch it again. Awesome, yeah. yeah. It's one of my favorite horror movies of all time. What about you, Isa? When did you first uh, see Rosemary's Baby? Ooh, early 20s, I'd say. So about a decade ago, probably. Nice, okay. Uh, yeah. Yes, I do remember it being heavy to watch, yep. right? And it's not so much about what's being shown, but just like everything that's kind of going on in the background of it, uh, of the story. Not, not so much what's on screen necessarily. There is something extremely uh, malicious about the way it unfolds in all the mundanity uh, mm. that that you see, right? Or that you participate in as an audience member. And like that yeah. small, small glimpses of horror is enough to kind of like run a through line through the entire film that is mm-hmm. unnerving to say the least. I, that mm. much I remember from seeing it 10 years ago. Yes, yeah. Uh, and to cap off Quick Hits Classics, I have one more recommendation. Sure. Um, this one is called 5 Centimeters Per Second. Yeah. Um, like everyone else, I've seen Your Name, I've seen Wavering With You, but I've only just recently caught one of Makoto Shinkai's earliest films, Five Centimeters Per Second. And to be honest, it's actually my favorite of his works. Oh. It's, a, it's a compact, hour-long film that is an anthology of three short stories following childhood friends Takaki Tuno and Akari Shinohara who are in love. Unfortunately, they are separated when both of them move to different faraway areas. The three stories follow them through many years into adulthood and deal with the mundanity and the harsh reality of long-distance relationships. You already know that Shinkai is great at investing you into stories of unfulfilled love Mm -hmm. and painful yearning. But this one is the realest and most authentic one because it doesn't involve any fantasy or sci-fi distractions. Mm -hmm. This is too real. Do you feel like... You know, this this could really happen and this has probably really happened. This is a very naturalistic story. They both grew up, they both grew farther apart, not just geographically, but emotionally as well. The emotions portrayed in the film are subtle and nuanced and evolve with age. It's so incredibly bittersweet and beautiful and heartbreakingly truthful about long distance relationships. So okay. yeah. Go catch uh five sentences per second on Netflix if you want to. It's only sixty minutes long. It's a very short film. Uh made out of three short stories. Um, I saw you've seen this before, right? Yes. Um, it was my first discovery of Makoto Shinkai. 
wow. And it was one of those really kind of random things. I had no idea who he was. Uh, it was a couple of years after it came out. Mm. And I was okay. just browsing, uh, you know, one of those specialized anime websites where you can watch things where you want to. Uh, mm. And I was like, oh, what's this? This is fairly interesting. Uh, I read the synopsis. I thought, okay, this is kind of cool. It's about an hour. I have the time. Let's go and watch that. Okay. I was blown away. I was blown away. So, like, upon hearing um, him blow up at the release of Your Name, yeah. right? And, like, finally kind of tying it. Because it was one of those things I watched and it was, like, deeply meaningful and fairly impactful. But I kind of forgot it because Shinkai hasn't really been, like, on my radar until Your Name came out again. Yeah. Uh, when that happened and I connected the dots, I was like, you know what? Everything that you see that is kind of magic in 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 uh, weathering with you and in your name, right? That is perfectly kind of like elucidated in uh, five centimeters per second, right? Mm. Uh, and it doesn't require the fantastical. It doesn't require any sort of like strange turn or any sort of like ex machina kind of like uh, intervention in order to drive it forward. It's straightforward. Mm. It's great storytelling at its core, and it's it's very essence, right? And I can see. Uh, why he is maybe as big as he is um, because like it, it, there are very early um, signs of that in, in uh, his early work yes definitely uh, that wraps it up for genre equality 54 check out all our recommendations nice. do not watch Picard or Halo because I agree with Hadida just don't waste some rubbish time. stuff going on don't waste the time uh, we'll be back next month though for a very very big topic Obi-Wan Kenobi Let's the series go. oh yeah this was awesome Okay, I mean... First yeah. two, actually. Yeah, yeah first two. First two. For all of you, I mean, spoiler alert. Lah. For all of you who are worried about the Grand Inquisitor, don't be. Yeah, lah. don't be. Relax, <laughs> relax. Now that, that uh, um, our friend Hidze is caught up with all of Marvel, uh, Star Wars, right? Yeah. Um. Wow. Like, Obi-Wan was quite interesting. Uh, yeah, by the way, during my rewatch of Star Wars, yes. I watched um, The Northman and um, Revenge of the Sith back-to-back. So, uh-huh. vo- volcano battles in both <laughs> Oh my god. Really mirrored each other to me. Like, and I was like, can I get Robert Eggers to do a Star War? You know? Actually, oh my god. Him. You should do oh a Star Oh my god. Star I will watch that. Ooh. Yeah, yeah. So, but yeah, don't be worried about the Grand Inquisitor. Dave Filoni is running the show. They're, he's not dead. Like, how many people have been shot exactly. in the stomach or have Darth Maul lost his entire stomach and survived? Exactly. <laughs> Van, uh, so many people. Who who else has been shot in the stomach? Um, so many. People. One, um, um, uh, Fennec, Fennec Shen. Shen, yeah, famously. Yeah. You just need Thundercat to show up and everything will be fine. Yeah. Right? Like, there's no in, worry. In, yeah. And Thundercat is in Tatooine. A... So it's fine. Oh, no, no, no. They weren't in Tatooine though. And, uh, they were in Dayu. Uh, Dayu. Yeah. In Star Wars, a stomach wound is not fatal. It's been proven over and over again. Do not worry about the continuity issue. It's not there. Mm-hmm. Um, plus, we'll talk about Lightyear oh, wait, it's also. Only, it's only uh, fatal for Qui-Gon Jinn though. Ah, well, that's right. Uh, yeah. Well, mm. Mm, I mean, he does yeah. return as a false spirit, lah. Many, many years. It took place many years ago, and Thundercat wasn't around yet. Yeah, so okay, why. maybe that's why. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's true. That's true. Yeah, the technology has not advanced yeah, yeah, yet. Yeah. <laughs> uh, plus, plus, we'll be talking about Pixar's Lightyear, which follows the origins of the toy Buzz Lightyear. Let's go. Uh, this time, his voice by Chris Evans. It follows Lightyear, the astronaut, not Lightyear, the toy. I love it. This is a, a very interesting concept. Plus, I'll be recapping and reviewing the final fourth and final season of Stranger Things, mm-hmm. uh, which is. 500 hours long. Um, we have Jurassic World Dominion as well. I'll do that. Th- oh, nice. Cool. Um, dinosaurs have inherited the world. Yeah. Good. Uh, the Umbrella Academy is back for its third season. 
Um, Aisa will be delving into a very long anime corner highlighted by two outstanding anime mm, yeah. Spy Family and yeah. your boy Kong Ming. Um, yeah, that's our highlights for Jordan Equality Let's go. 5. St- very excited to talk about Obi-Wan especially. Same, same, same. Yeah. Um, till next time, guys. This has been Hit Zero. I'm Hardy. I'm Aisa. See ya. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Ciao.